You're listening to the HSDNA podcast from the Garden State. Your host, Justin Starbird, and guests from HS Design walk you through each step of the medical product development process. Listen in as they discuss topics like contextual research, human factor testing, and conceptualization, giving you the best practices and real examples of success in the field. And now, here's your host, Justin Starbird. Welcome back to this episode of HSDNA. My name is Justin Starbird, and today we're on with Dr. Mary Beth Pervitera. Mary Beth, welcome back. Uh, great to uh, start off uh, part two of our seven-part series here. Thanks, Justin. I'm happy to be here, happy to share the knowledge, and happy to get, the, get information about the book out in the field. Yeah, no, this is exciting. Um, kind of, you know, outlined uh, a little bit about your latest book, Applied Human Factors in Medical Device Design. And it's exciting because, um, it, you know, you've got a whole host of information in there. It's a emerging field that's becoming much more mainstream. Uh, you have become a recognizable uh, expert in the space. And, and it's always interesting to hear, you know, last time we talked uh, a lot about, you know, the reason for the book, um, the need for the book, uh, where the interest is and, and why you're putting it together. And so, you know, today let's start with something really basic. And what exactly is the definition of human factors? Sure. Well, that's, um, that's a really good question. And uh, when I did some research, I found several different definitions. Um, so I'm going to break it down super simple. Um, human factors is a scientific discipline. It's concerned with the interaction between humans and other elements of a system. So when you think about it, ergonomics, ergon means work, nomos is the study of, it's really the study of work. So it's the interaction between human beings, the tools, the tasks, the environment, the work, and everyday living. And it's something that's been around for, for years. Um, it started back with the growth in aviation during World War II and advanced technology. And as that aviation industry grew, there was a critical need to improve the human performance and reduce the errors. So for us in medical devices, it's an applied field and it looks at balancing those user needs, the capabilities and limitations of, of the human person, of the user um, during the product design process. Um, and, that, and that's super important that we understand how do people sense the world around them? How do they perceive? What are their thoughts, the cognition? And then what are the actions that they need to take uh, to take into consideration when they're going to head to design and use a medical device? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things in the impetus behind putting together the book was actually to help guide uh, folks uh, in, in the space. So you put it together in a really unique way. Tell us, how do you want readers uh, to actually use the book? Sure. So this book, the, the intention really is to serve as a reference for, for, for human factors and applying it in medical devices. And you could argue that you could use the book in, for all, a host of other um, product design, and, and you could, and, and welcome to that. But really, it focuses in on um, and lists the current U.S. and international human factor standards that we need to take into consideration, and then provides examples and explains effective methods so that you can take, uh, take a look at what those standards say, what the guidance says from FDA, 
what the IEC says and then understand what does that mean in the context of my medical device design. So it's really intended for human factors professionals, hardware software designers, engineers, quality assurance personnel, regulators that may need a review, um, a regulatory affairs specialists, or even students to, to be able to go to one point and, and look and see what were today, what are those references of the standards, and then how might I use it or how have they been used up to date? Got it. So you broke this out into seven sections, the book into seven sections. Can you, you know, and so in the, in the beginning, we talked a little bit about the overview of the, the queuing factors toolbox, planning, documentation. Uh, you know, can you describe the relationship between queuing factors and design? Yeah, and, and that's really a, a, a fundamental and wonderful question because um, if you don't put human factors into design, then you aren't actually practicing good risk management. Um, and, that, and that's my personal opinion. Um, and, and I think that that's all true because if I look at my standard around risk management, that standard says that you need to, to do it by design. So it's really got there's a few key human factors attributes that really go into design principles. And so I'm going to talk about a, a few design principles and then I'm going to look at human factors or I can do vice versa, but let's start off with design principles. Mm -hmm. So um, we know that we need to have error detection and we need to have that the user needs to understand if there's something that's gone wrong and they need to be able to recover that we need to match the technology with the user's mental models, meaning how they think in the world, and that we need to ensure the consistency. So if I'm used to driving a car with the, the gas pedal on the right and the brake on the left, if that's my expectation that every time I get into a car, it's going to, to be the same. So if I look at error detection recovery and I'm matching it with the mental model and I'm being consistent with expectations, what I'm really talking about is cognition. And that's a human factors attribute, the cognition. What do I think? And that refers to a, a higher um, mental phenomenon, looking at memory and information processing. And, and I use the rule, what are the rules of my everyday life and the strategies and the problem solving that happens. And when you think about how people think in their world, when I'm talking about error detection and recovery, it's different. If I, if I take a look for surgeons, for example, if I take general surgeons, a general surgeon that's just coming out and learning versus a surgeon that's been out in practice for 30 or 40 years, they're going to have a different expectation, a different model. And when we talk about human factors, it's how do I adjust for that? Um, sure. Another example would be um, how do I uh, reduce or mitigate the need for excessive physical exertion or optimize physical movements such as reaching controls? And this gets down to the very physical interaction with a product and that is um, that I can see things in my manual dexterity, my strength and my reach. You know, if I'm designing a product, most products are designed globally. And if I'm designing a product that is intended for some markets, they may be smaller, a female five, you know, 5% 5 of your users may be female and they may have um, a little bit less dexterity or strength. I may be actually designing a lever arm or control that they may not be able to reach just due to hand size. And what is the compromise there? Does that compromise their ability to see the field? 
So it's really about taking a look at what are these design principles that I'm trying to, to bring forward in the design and then matching them to the attributes of the user. You, uh, you covered a lot there in that question. And in fact, you know, we just did a uh, interview with Michael Quinn, uh, the VP there at, at HS Design as well, to talk about uh, different standardization um, around uh, ISO 1345 and some of the design principles and what makes those so important. And, you know, so it was really interesting to see that um, you apply some of those quality management systems to human factors as well. And, you know, to understand how they all work together and, and in what context. You you did say something else too that was interesting um, about how the expectations for somebody potentially using uh, a device you know what the, what their expectations are. You know whether they're new to the field or they've they're more of a veteran. Do you see age as, as something that does play a factor in human factors and and how it relates to either development of the new product or um, the use case of the product? Absolutely. So age, um, your gender, where you are located. I mean, all of that. Any. Um, any issues that the user has in regards to their own personal health. Um, I know I'm reaching a certain age where I really cannot see without my glasses. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll be asked to assess the, the design of um, a labeling, you know, device labeling, and I'll say, I can't see it. There's just no way I can see it until I put my glasses on. Um, so age definitely experience is another thing that takes into consideration, into factor into consideration. Um, and then just your overall, your overall person, you know, what is your background and, and what, in what's your level of education? So, um, you know, and then what's your commitment, your motivation? Because sometimes commitment and motivation is not there. You know, every, you're not always motivated to do uh, absolutely everything by the book. And so how does the device accommodate for all of this various level of users, various, uh, accommodate various commitments of use? and take those into account when you're designing that product. And it's very much tied into the risk management. Yeah, well, and so on a, on the previous podcast, we've also talked about uh, international and national guidelines and, and standards in human factors. As I mentioned, Michael talked about it uh, as a, from a design firm's perspective, as well as like as a differentiation, um, ISO 1345. Why would a company choose to do more or less work in human factors as they develop medical devices and how do those uh, national uh, standards, you know, affect, uh, you know, how they actually implement that? Sure. I mean, it gets down to the point that when you submit for device approval, they're going to require that the device be safe and effective, but they don't require that somebody actually wants to use the device. And that gets down to they're assessing usability and I can use things, but I may not like to use things. Mm -hmm. And the usability, their overall efficiency, user satisfaction, those are all business risks. So if I don't have someone loving my product, they may not use it or it makes it open for a competitor to come in. So it's really about optimizing the, the usability of a product that gets us through FDA, but then also getting it to the point where there's a significant competitive advantagement, uh, competitive advantage for manufacturers to follow all of the good human factors practices so that they get to the, I really love that device. 
and I want to use it and I can't see myself doing a particular procedure without it. Yep. In the book, you reference a human factors uh, toolbox. Can you describe you know, what that is? Yeah. So, you know, I like to think of this as, you know, knowledge is a tool and like all tools, it's, it's really the impacts in the hands of the user. And so the first thing you have to do is look and see what are the tools that I have? What are the tools available to me and, and, and what might I use? And so when um, in the book, it describes um, all of the various tools that I could possibly find uh, that are common in practice. There are certainly more tools than, than that are included in the book, but these are common in medical device design and it's um, contextual inquiry. It's the ability to go in, do that upfront research with existing customers on what their practice is today to understand what, what are some of their expectations and what do they do today uh, that might impact the next generation design or what's the new opportunity. Um, task analysis is another one, which is fundamental to uh, human factors practice is breaking down the tasks that they're trying to do into discrete tasks and subtasks, steps and substeps that then you can do an analysis on to say, what is the perception? What is the cognition and action that's happening under each one of them? And then my favorite chapter um, or section in the or in tool in the toolbox is really how do I apply human factors in design? So some of the things where I was talking about fit and expectation and the mental model, what are some examples and ways in which I can take that standard, the design standard, Amy AT75, and really bring it into design? And after that, we start getting into, in the toolbox, we start getting into evaluative methods. So how can I evaluate a design with users, without users? How do I do a simulated use study? How do I do a use-focused risk analysis, risk management? What's the root cause analysis? Why are things happening the way that they are? And it's not in regards to a mechanical design or a software issue. It's really about what is the user thinking about that they've came into an issue and what's causing them? What's the, what's the misnomer in that design? And then it gets down into more research-based um, on known use error. How do I harvest the information that I may have collected in my own uh, manufacturer's post-market surveillance or using available databases. And then it goes on even further to, to discuss um, the most key and important part of your FDA submission, which is your, your human factors validation or your summative study, and then preparing the report for agency submission. So there's quite a bit of um, tools in that toolbox. And uh, it, it gets down to describing each one of them with examples that you can then understand when to use what um, and how to apply each one of the tools. So what's the purpose of those tools? Does that come naturally, like knowing which like tool in the toolbox to use when the time is right? Or does that come with experience or is there a protocol to follow that, you know, allows you to say, okay, well, we're going to start with the you know, start pull the, the nail, you're going to, you know, mark the, the spot first and then, you know, measure it and then you measure again and make sure it's right. Like, you know, uh, and uh, can you give us an example of, of, um, of that and when, when you use a specific tool and how? Sure. I think most of the, because, because of the, the international guidances um, and standards that are out there, most manufacturers understand that they have to do a validation study and that they they will have to prepare the report for the agency submission 
I don't believe that the rest of the tools are um, as widely or as commonly known. Um, so I, I definitely think there's a an element of experience that comes to play in there. Or that, or that. Um, yeah. But even then, I think you, I think you do learn over the over time. I think the book gives you a good example to explain that you have options. Yeah. Um, and to explain what those options are and how and how to strategize around it. Um, and when you you think about you know getting to a strategy, that's really what you're talking about. You know, chapter three covers strategy planning and documentation, traceability for human factors, and and the traceability part becomes important because they want to know historically how have you considered human factors all along the way, um, and and it always starts with what do you know already and then what risk do you have and then applying potential what are the human factors activities and there's always a budget concern right there's always i only have x amount of dollars so how am i going to get human factors in there without spending you know a ton of money or blowing my budget on it because some activities don't have to cost a lot of money in order to get good results and there's a lot that's available so in in the in the book in chapter three it 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 goes through and discusses um, strategies around how to form a strategy to make sure that you are doing the right amount of human factors that you know instead of saying know your users well how do I know my users and what does it mean that I know my user when I design this device and asking the right questions and coming up that um, with a strategy that matches the complexity of the device and and that of predicate devices. So you're almost as a it acts as a consultant as well. Not only are you executing, you know, against the the work, but you're also helping uh, to work with them so they understand what you're doing too. No, that's right. That's 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 absolutely right. I mean, it's the uh, the more complex the device, the more users you may want to have, or the more broad if if it's a a, um, a combination product that is going to be sold over the counter then you may need more users and more studies to make sure that a broader swath of the market, you're sure that they'll understand it. Um, and definitely, uh, you know, taking the, a consulting approach to making sure that, the, that you've got the right level with the right budget and everything is appropriate. So one, one uh, thing that just keeps coming up as I hear you explain how you go about a process is, you know, how long does this take? And can you give an example of a of a product or a device that's gone through all this process and kind of? I know you're you're bound by NDAs and, and certain things, but is there anything that you can talk about and kind of give the context of, of timing as you go through this as well? Yeah, I think timing is always dependent upon again complexity uh, and then the um, the amount of um, maturity that the medical device manufacturer has, if they're a startup versus you know, a larger, well-established manufacturer, you're gonna have a different timeline. Um, and and you, you can, if, you know, if the technology, if you're not having a, a huge amount of technical hurdles in regards to the overall functionality of that product design, the, the process of applying good human factors can be every bit of aggressive as the product development cycle. So you can do that upfront research through needs identification and product design and get through testing 
in about six months, which is the same thing if you were an aggressive product developer, meaning that you know your user, you've got an idea, you've got a strong engineering team. So if all, you know, all stars are aligned, then, then you really can expedite this in a, in a very efficient manner. Um, conversely, it can be something that you run into hurdles with. So, um, for example, in new technologies, um, so there's a there's a, a chapter in the book at the end of it when we're talking about case studies, and that particular case study is around augmented reality. And in in those special cases, you know, you're going to have to plan for a little bit longer of a product development cycle because you're introducing a new technology with new variables, mm-hmm. and that's where discussions with the FDA become super important and you can engage the agency to say, I know I need human factors. Can you please provide a protocol review and assure that I have covered everything in your opinion that's going to um, be necessary to, to, to get through my human factors validation. Um, so that's, that's something that is, uh, you know, so I guess, I guess I answered it with the, it depends. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That, I think that gives a uh, good context to it. Um, what else uh, should we know about uh, section one of the book? Yeah, so there's a couple of really good, interesting box tidbits in here. There is a listing of all, in chapter one, there is a listing of all of the current standards and, and means of how do you stay current with standards. So it covers all of the U.S. standards that are in medical device guidance, and that is everything from hardware to software. Um, it has the Amy recognized standards, other international standards, and then um, it has some really great box descriptions on the differences between design validation and human factors validation, and what's the relationship between marketing studies and human factors studies, and um, and then there's a great diagram that was adapted from a good friend of mine, Gerard Tornfleet, who um, Gerard previously was Medtronic, and he talks about what's the value of human factors. And that's a really great chart that he's, he's enabled us to adapt for the purposes of the book that talks about value-based care with products and systems, getting them to be desirable, usable, and how does that end up in increasing value of fewer CAFAs, efficient use, and how to master the market. So there's some really good nuggets of um, diagrams and tidbits in there. Awesome. Well, uh, as always, thanks for joining me. Uh, And, you know, so happy to hear about, you know, what you're working on and and how to actually apply uh, the, the, the content of the book and, and, you know, give that to people and, and listeners in a context that they can actually, you know, use. So again, the name of the book is Applied Human Factors in Medical Device Design. You can find that on Amazon. So this is it for, for uh, part two. And next, uh, part three, we'll actually cover discovery and input methods for human factors. So Mary Beth, thanks for joining me again today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. This has been the latest episode of the HSDNA podcast. On behalf of our guests today and host Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. As always, to listen to other episodes of HSDNA, go to hs-design.com and scroll over the HSDNA tab on our menu. Until next time, thanks for listening.